Welcome to the inaugural PowerSport Healthcare Fix podcast. I'm Etwan Lavelle and my guest today is Cahill Friel, a Donegal-born serial entrepreneur. His education was cut short at 16 when summoned to run the family business. He went on to build an unconventional CV, co-founding Marion Stockbrokers after an early foray in the tech sector and lecturing at the University of Ulster. Now at the helm of Raglan Capital, he has created and built up biotech companies, ranging from rare disease group Amrit Pharma to HVivo and Poolbeg Pharma. Cahill, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Pleased to be speaking to you. And you, I guess I'm going to start with asking you how you felt about being the middle child of 10 and having to leave school and run the family business at the age of 16. How did this impact you? Yeah, look, a very good question, Tone. If that didn't happen, I probably wouldn't be here speaking to you today. And the explanation is a large family, middle child, older kids, all at university, some of them in careers, family ran into trouble, too much debt, 79, 80 in west of Ireland. So basically, I was the wrong place, wrong time, could say. But the beauty about it was my father took ill, never came back into the business. I had to deal with banks. The rest of my life, I hated debt. Otherwise, I would stay at school. I hated the day watching the school bus go by, the family business. I should be on that bus going to school. However, the upside is it made me really hungry. And I almost, would, one could say, a near-death educational experience. I said, I've left with just an O-level. All my brothers and sisters went to university. Two of them were teachers. One of them was doing a PhD. So it made me doubly hungry to get an education at night. As a result, the reason I'm here speaking to you today, learning to read and study at night. I spent this weekend, you'll laugh, reading up all about a particular area of pharmaceuticals I know nothing about because I'm meeting them tomorrow. So it was that near-death education, having to cram study in the evenings, the weekends, allowed me for the rest of my life pick a new area. I did stop broken, I knew nothing about it, learned, got stuck in. I did an oil and gas company, uh, learned on the job. Do you think if you hadn't um, been forced to leave school and had this setback early in your life, you'd be in a different place today? I don't know. I often wonder about that. And I probably two ways of looking at, yeah, look, I've got young kids myself. I spent this weekend a 15-year-old trying to get him to do his study for his uh, O-levels coming up in a few weeks' time or the Irish version, which is a junior cycle. Could I get him motivated? I kept thinking... I think I was probably the same when I was 15. I did enough. Um, I, th I think that the, the fright, and I keep going back, it's still seared seeing that bus go by with all my school colleagues made me hungry for the rest of life. And then it instills a bit of hunger. But I think like, some people are more hungry than others. Being honest, we've grown up on the west coast of Donegal. Uh, the sea is on one side of you. And there's rocks and mountains on you, this little narrow track to cut out a living. You kind of have to move and keep moving. It, it, it's tricky. So to answer your question, yes and no. You have been involved in a number of sectors over the years, Cahill, uh, tech and oil and gas. As a non-scientist, what drew you to invest in life sciences? It's a sector that's perceived as being particularly high risk, um, given just the nature of clinical research. Yeah, it goes back to probably your earlier question, is that... Um, about risk and risk appetite. What was drawn me to the life science, I had a, uh, the original was a stockbroker, it was finance, I ended up running a small facet oil and gas PLC. It was an oil discovery company. Uh, in 2014, oil dropped by 80%. That meant it'd be very difficult to survive in that business. So I took one look and I said, what is similar to oil discovery? 
well, pharmaceutical drug discovery is very similar. So that taught me to say, well, look, let's try pharmaceuticals. We changed the name of Fastnet to Amrit Pharma. We got shareholder recognition. And we took similar risks in Amrit Pharma as it would have been in uh, the oil and gas company. But the attraction that people forget is that small cap oil and gas companies discover oil. They're terrible at developing it, terrible at selling them. Small cap biotechs are great at discovery, but big pharma are great at production and selling. So the, the two industries are similar. The financial models are similar. The people are similar. The slight subtle difference is the end product. Oil and gas, hydrocarbons, and pharmaceutical end products different, but everything else up to the end product is very, very similar. So that's really what attracted me. And I think more people should consider a pivot between industries when you have such broad stroke similarities. Um, your strategy with Raglan Cahill to date has been to IPO within two years of a company's inception. With listings on London's LSE down 62% in 2022 and only two on the A market, um, what is your view of the benefits of a New York listing today versus a London listing? Well, the, the question I would say, uh, I would say it's not there's benefits and it's very topical to say, oh, people are moving from London to New York. They're very different market, very different risk profiles. London's a fantastic place to list a small cap company, 20 million, 50, 100, 150 million. If you want to grow beyond that, you do need to head towards NASDAQ because you have deeper pools of cash, deeper pools of capital. You can grow faster and bigger. But for a lot of small companies, they'll never pass 100 to 150 million. They'll get bought out. So New York has these deeper pools. However, what most people forget is you can, it's impossible to list a 50 million or 100 million market cap company on NASDAQ, just not happening. Uh, so you, you need to look at both markets. At the upper end, we do look something, a lot of self-flagellation uh, is London people move into New York. That's just a cycle. There's a cycle at the moment. Uh, bear in mind, America has flooded the American economy with cash. You've had Trump, love him or hate him, he's made the North American market totally laissez-faire. That has encouraged big companies move. But I'd say give it time. Everything is equivalent. London, there's a role for it. There's a role for NASDAQ. And the real role as a small cap tech company or biotech company is grow in London. Once you've had your wings, if you really want to get to two, three, four, five hundred million, yes. And then the last piece, you must use both markets. You dual list. GW Pharma is a classic way to do it right. Our friends in Amrit, they dual listed, but only for a brief period, a year and a half. When you grow 150, 200 millions in London, you then dual list in NASDAQ and you do it over two, three years. You keep the dual listing and only when you hit four, five, six hundred million, maybe a billion market cap, do you drop the London listing. GW did it, it's like textbook. Started out early doors, 50 million, grew to 150 million. When they hit 200 million market cap in London, they dual listed. They kept the London and NASDAQ listing right up to about a billion and a half. And eventually they got for, bought it for four or five billion. So I think that's the piece people miss. It's that dual listing. London has fantastic investors who will follow small cap companies. New York doesn't. Uh, if you're sub 100, sub 200 million, you're absolutely nobody. So people should keep in mind it's a combination of the two markets are hugely valuable and use the benefit of both of them. 
And do you think the the current discussion about changing some of the regulations around it, and there's also discussion about executive pay and that that making it less competitive than the UK, do you think any of that can alter um, in the short term the attractiveness of the LSE and AIM? I think probably I think we're going there. Um, look, AIM realizes an LSE it needs to be more flexible. It needs to be more innovative, like all markets in the world. Uh, so yes, there is changes coming through to make it easier. Uh, New York is doing them. And business is a very dynamic uh, one changes, they all change. So I think, yes, some changes are coming true. I think the big one in the UK markets, probably the government needs to encourage more. If you think of the statistic recently, I think it was less than 3% of UK pension fund assets are invested in the UK stock markets. They're invested in property. So I think the government does need to encourage major pension funds in the UK to invest in our own. London stock market because that's without it that you need you can't expect overseas people you can't expect retail so yeah some changes is good needs to come but we're going through a period like life is all about change the public markets are changing and uh, it, I think it's an exciting time and um, looking at the fact as you say time changes it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed Ireland has been a member of the European Union for 50 years um, according to EY foreign direct investment was up by 22% in Ireland in 2022. What are the medium to long-term prospects for growth in Ireland and for post-Brexit UK? I'm a born optimist, uh, but a realist. I think, first of all, uh, Ireland's lucky. It's a tiny little country, 4.7 million people in the south, another one and a quarter in the north, six million. That's smaller than the greater Manchester area. People forget that, so it's tiny. Ireland is most people know it was an agricultural society. We had no industry. It was not particularly pleasant to live there. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Suddenly, late 80s, early 90s, it became industrialized. And we didn't have the legacy of, for instance, the Midlands, the steel building or the steel uh, industry, uh, shipbuilding, coal mining. They were a legacy industry. Ireland was able to pivot from agriculture to the modern economy. It's small. So I think Ireland's literally guarantee to grow, 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 because they keep twisting and turning and adjusting as any small economy needs to be. Brexit, unfortunately, is slowing Britain down, but it, it'll improve. Going back, Britain for about 25, 30 years would have been like the modern Constantinople. Constantinople sucked in resources, people from all over the world. People forget Britain was the go-to place all through the 90s, zero zeros. 2010s up to about two three years you can't have that unbelievable frenetic growth brexit is a kind of calming effect and then we'll grow we'll grow as a country it'll grow again that's my view and and the irish uh, long-term sort of growth prospects well there i said uh, a small country it's like a small company small aim companies have to be nimble and move fast and keep evolving with just 4.7 million in the south um it's very easy to keep growing you keep moving we're sitting on the fringes uh, it's useful being a little offshore island off an offshore island off the big european mass so i think ireland's going to have the absolutely i think the whole of europe ireland's going to entering the golden age as is europe as the uk goes back to the blocks north america dominated the world for so long europe has finally found this mojo and isn't it keeps saying not the eu this is everything from ukraine back to spain right up to the pharaohs the shetlands and even throwing iceland in so i think the whole of europe 
What was the biggest growing pains Europe had the single big for 15, 20 years? Lack of skilled workers. That draws. America had them. They came across the border from Mexico. America has always brought in young talent. That's good. Europe is finally waking up to it. And the biggest problem has been skilled labor. But guess what? Um, Mr. Putin's just handed Europe 36 million hard work and skilled Ukrainians. All wars and negotiations. There's always a negotiation. There's inevitability what will happen in Ukraine. A major part of Ukraine is going to be part of Europe, basically. Is it part of the EU? Who knows? So 36 million hardworking, skilled people on the edge of Europe is going to transform Europe. So to answer your question, I think Ireland will grow. Britain is going this little sideways movement, but give Britain a year or two. It just look, needs a change of government to give every excuse to say, OK, we've done our Brexit thing. We're nimble. And Britain is one of the most nimble countries like Ireland in the world. So I think Britain, EU, Ireland are entering that golden age. North America will continue, I believe, innovate, innovate. But it's probably got problems that uh, would have driven Brexit. You've got a very polarized society in Northern America, the Democrats versus the Republicans. There's no in-between. They love or hate each other. There's, not, there's no hands across that divide. Sticking with the, with the United States, in light of the US FTC's decision to block the Amgen Horizon merger recently, what is the outlook for M&A in the pharma industry? I mean, the US usually leads the way. What do you think is going to be, what will be the consequences for Europe and the rest of the world? A ton. This is a classic North American one. Um, this high profile deal is just the Joe Biden regime making the world know we're arrived, we're in town. Uh, and we're going to slow things down. We're going to, it's the new sheriff, basically, right? We're going to ban some of these wholesale Republican. The Republicans under Trump waved everything through. And if you think what happened there, uh, Trump, one of his first things in office, he removed the Frank Dodds Act from a 50 billion. He moved up the 250 billion market or of net assets of a, a bank. And what happened? Roll the clock forward four years. You have Silicon Valley. Who was two thirty billion? Uh, your first republic, Signature, all gone bankrupt because they were no longer subject to Frank Dodd's oversight. So that was a Trumpian. You now have Biden, and he's just laying down the laws. And like, there's no rational reason, rhyme, why that deal should be blocked, other than the new sheriffs in town. I think it'll have no real effect. Will it go through? Will it not? Nobody knows. So yes, it'll it'll slow M and A down. But hey, there's another election coming in America next year. Democracy is a funny old thing. Uh, new, who knows who will be in? But I think if you look at the basic dynamics, how biotech grows into big pharma, that it's it's the lifeblood of it, and you're not going to see any cutting back there. It's a big headline deal, making a statement, and I'll guarantee you in six or nine months there'll be plenty more deals. They, they might want to, they don't want the biggers getting too big. It's nice to have some mid-sized ones. That I think that's personal yeah. view. Touching on that, the uh, the structure of big farmers in, in recent years has changed significantly. A lot of them are spinning off consumer businesses they may have had. They're focusing on smaller uh, a smaller number of therapeutic areas. Do you think this is likely to continue? And what does this mean for biotech? Yeah, I think at all that's classic business. Business is always evolving. It was pretty cool for the last 25, 30 years to put all the bits together, be really big, have consumer, have biotech, have everything. It's almost now they're growing. You actually look at there's no sense a consumer product sitting in a biotech doesn't make sense. I think you'll see more splitting them off, more specialization. 
Um, so the, it was obvious there's more that going to happen. There's going to be a more focus really on revenues. I think we've come through a period of 25 years of quasi-free money. You could put a stick up for the last 10, 15 years in NASDAQ. Say you're a biotech, you'd raise money. Biotechs are now being asked hard questions exactly where you're coming, what are you doing, what's going to happen. So I think that's business evolving. I think a lot of companies still haven't realized it has changed. It's a bit like it's all changed. So I think the, the view going forward is it's going to be harder to raise money. There's going to be a big focus on revenues. Like companies are going to have to make sure they've got revenues or get revenues fast. And the biggest change, the endless cash burdens are over. That really started in Britain. Britain led the way with uh, Neil Woodford burning through eight or 10 million of shareholders' money, throw 20 million there, 100 million there. So I think North America's realized, mm, there's no sense throwing billions here and billions there. You actually have to see a clear pathway rather than the scattergun. You're now in the rifle approach. Money is available, but you have to explain yourself how, what, where, and you're going to do it. Yeah, you just mentioned Neil Woodford. What do you think the long-term fallout of, of that has been? And is there anybody today who's championing biotech stocks in a way that he did? There's two ways of looking at it. Neil Woodford absolutely really spent an awful lot of money, but, and he championed biotech stocks. But the view is, did he set the UK industry back? Because it allowed private clients, investors to think biotech's toxic. Look, people forget in 95, 96, 97, there was hundreds of tech, the tech boom, but on the back to back, there was hundreds through the 90s in North America of biotechs. An awful them grew up and were very successful. So people in North America don't associate biotechs with failure. Unfortunately, in the UK, he championed them. But if you look at his entire portfolio, every one of them has run into trouble. Like in HVivo, it got 120 million near Woodford. We bought HVivo for seven million three years later so there's you don't actually need a champions you just need the companies to deliver themselves let them evolve so i don't think you don't need a champion we do need the government in the uk to probably encourage major pension funds and it's not that hard to invest in a swath of uk inc public companies um like if you think of the us the us doesn't have a champion they don't have a new word for it but there's a proven business model IPO, deliver the results, get bought out. IPO, deliver the results, or grow and become a big company. There's no in between. The Neil Woodford model was endless funding rounds, huge staff, but no clear end game. And I think that's going back to my event. The new model is back to the 97s. Uh, 1997 is a big pharma, my belief, will fund phase threes. Public companies should not fund phase threes. It was actually insanity raising public money. Phase three is de-risked. Big Pharma have the money, the resources. If they don't fund a phase three, why should you and I, our pension funds, fund it? Phase one, phase two is for um, the risk and there's small companies, so that's where it is. So that's the change. I don't think you'll see many public companies funding. And then on a, a final question, Cahill, your involvement in biotech has spanned a number of different therapeutic areas from rare disease to immunology. Um, what What's next? Yeah, Tony, I think, as I said earlier, look, it's, it's been turning 59 in a few months' time, but I've never been more excited in all my life. If you think the pandemic came, every pandemic, one pandemic, uh, the Roman Empire uh, went from paganism to Christianity. Another pandemic caused the fall of the Roman Empire the end of the dark ages 
and the Age of Enlightenment was the Great Plague, every pandemic, the Spanish flu uh, caused the evolution of centralized healthcare and the five-day week. The Spanish flu in the UK, in Europe, transformed society. And the current pandemic is where I'm leading what's going to happen. It's going to transform society. Uh, you've got hybrid working. Who would have thought we all could work from home here? You and I are having a podcast and now as are in the office. So it's, it's wonderful and life goes on. Likewise, I say pandemic, they're very difficult, but they bring great. So the big one, hybrid working, four-day week may come in. And maybe just a final one, Cahill. You've, you've surrounded yourself by, by very brilliant people like Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin. Um, to what extent is, has, has the influence of, of people like Professor O'Neill um, guided you in your choices with regard to therapeutic areas, for instance? Yeah, look, Tom, I'm really only a finances. My wife calls a financial entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs, a bit like the countries, I said, do you have to be flexible and go with opportunities. So, yeah, having Professor Luke O'Neill on board, A, gives us credibility. They'd be huge knowledge. And if you think, we took a little company called Facet Oil and Gas in 2015, got a brilliant guy called Joe Wiley, who's at Slept Lived, and another guy who didn't know, they lived half a mile apart all their life, called Roy Nealon. A CEO was Joe, CFO was Rory. Put them together, the company had a market cap of 15 million, rolled the clock forward six years, it got bought for 1.5 billion cash. So that's brilliant people. You don't need many of them. Public companies, you need one or two or three of them. So look, and actually, I think small cap companies, particularly public biotechs, narrow your board down. It's nonsense to have a cast of thousands, six, seven, eight, almost money fairly. It should be tiny little boards in public companies, but with brilliant people like Luke's, the likes of Joe Wiley's, the Roy Nayland's, the real driven, and I in finally think on aim. There almost needs to be a clearing up of the jobs for the boys and the girls and all these boards of companies. It's just hangers on. My view is small cap public company, a board of three, four is more than enough. But the average aim company is a board of seven or eight. Two thirds of them, not sure what they're doing other than picking up a salary. Thank you, Cahill, so much for your time this morning. We're going to end it there. My thanks this morning to Cahill Friel, to my producer Gwen Kalish, to Sarah McLeod and Power Squad for their sponsorship. See you next month for the next installment.